Welcome to Stimiverse Podcast, episode 36. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Dr. Jennifer Yu. Jennifer is a principal scientist and director of the Disabilities Research Program at SRI International. She specializes in the development, implementation, and evaluation of programs and services that improve learning and quality of life for people with autism, learning disabilities, and mental or behavioral health issues. She's led experimental and quasi-experimental studies funded by the U.S. Department of Education and the National Science Foundation to evaluate school-related interventions aimed at improving engagement, motivation, and academic performance among elementary to post-secondary students with disabilities. Dr. Yu received her master's degree in education and a doctorate in public health from Harvard University. In our discussion, Jennifer talks about her research and covers a multitude of topics. These include the importance of managing the transition of children with autism into adulthood, the predisposition of people with autism to engage with science and technology, relevant technologies and interventions, including snuddle, common misconceptions about educational outcomes in people with autism, and so much more. This is Stemiverse Podcast Episode 36. Stemiverse is a podcast produced by Tech Explorations. Our mission is to help educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. Whether you are a professional or casual teacher teaching in the classroom or a parent or caretaker teaching at home, this podcast brings you the knowledge and experiences of practitioners, academics, entrepreneurs, and lifelong learners who are passionate about education and strive every day to help our children prepare for life in a world of radical change. And why not? Abundance. This podcast is brought to you by Tech Explorations, a leading provider of educational resources for makers, STEM students, and teachers. For a limited time only, go to texplore.com slash stemiverse and receive Peter's latest ebook, Maker Education Revolution, a book about how making is changing the way that people learn and teach in the 21st century. Marcus. Welcome back. Thanks, Peter. How are you? Good, good. It's been um, a couple of weeks since our last interview, and uh, we're now back with a special guest from California, mm-hmm. and that is uh, Dr. Jennifer Yu. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Um, where are you from? Where are you calling from? I am calling from Menlo Park, California. So it's the San Francisco Bay Area, um, the Silicon Valley, I guess you could call it. Um, That's where uh, my company is headquartered. Uh, I work at SRI International. We're a nonprofit research and development institute. Great. How are things there in California right now? It's not too bad. Well, I mean, for California, it is bad because we're so used to really mild climates. Um, Here it's, you know, I guess around 60 degrees Fahrenheit, which for the rest of our country would seem balmy. And for Californians, we're all in our parkas and uh, complaining about the cold weather. But um, but otherwise, yeah, it's great. 
What about you? How are things over there in Australia? Yeah, well, we are heading into, what is it, uh, into uh, autumn now. Mm -hmm. uh, looking out the window, we've got a really black sky. <laughs> it was blue 10 minutes ago, so it look, looks like it's going to be a rainy day, but the temperature has started dropping, so we are heading into winter. Yesterday it was 89 degrees in the Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit scale. <laughs> I would hope so, <laughs> otherwise we're stuffed. But we, we are quite similar in that, like we, we do expect hot weather here in Sydney. Ah, all right. Yeah. So uh, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> so Jennifer, I know that you have uh, interest in learning in relation to children with special uh, learning difficulties. And that's actually one of the reasons that I wanted to talk to you uh, on, on this particular topic. So could you take uh, a few minutes, tell us a bit about your background and your research, and then we'll take it from there. Sure, sounds good. Um, so like I said, I work at SRI International. Um, within SRI, there is an education division. And in that division, I am a principal scientist, as well as the director of our disabilities research program. Um, that means that I conduct studies and I evaluate various types of interventions and programs that are really aimed at providing supports, both in terms of academic support as well as social-emotional types of learning um, for students with developmental and cognitive disabilities, such as autism and dyslexia. Before I was a researcher um, in a previous life, I was actually a teacher. I taught uh, high school general science and chemistry in California. Um, so I also have that kind of practical background as well. And um, I would say that that's actually what sort of led me to this interest in pursuing research, uh, because while I greatly enjoyed the work that I did interacting with my students um, on a daily basis, at the same time, I recognized um, from that experience that there were so many other kind of issues and other things that were going on in my students' life that I, as a teacher, just what I didn't feel I was able to really provide everything I could for them. And that sort of led me down the path of research, both in education, I have my master's degree in education, as well as public health, um, where I have a focus on behavioral and mental health um, for uh, students and children with disabilities. Hmm. So when about was that when you decided to start your research in uh, trying to find ways to help children that were, I suppose, different to other kids in your class? Mm -hmm. um, so I would say pretty early on. I mean, I had students, um, you know, while I was a general education teacher, um, many of the students uh, in uh, many of the schools um, at that time, and increasingly so, tend to be these mainstreamed or inclusive environments. And so there were a lot of students with very diverse learning backgrounds, and some of them happened to be officially diagnosed as having some kind of disability. And that could be anything from, you know, learning disabilities such as dys dyslexia or dyscalculia to autism um, to ADHD. So just having that kind of diverse environment in the classroom, it just really opened my eyes to um, ways to really thinking about, you know, how I can reach them and what are the ways to do that and realizing that I just felt limited in my understanding, um, just 
naturally um, and eventually led me down the path toward looking at research. So while I was in graduate school, both in education and public health, um, my focus had always been on some form of disability, either autism or learning disabilities. Um, the autism piece, I guess, really came into play not that long ago, maybe in the last five to 10 years, where I've had the chance to work with other researchers, you know, outside of SRI, as well as internally, um, where we've had this focus and uh, looking at autism. And in our case, um, really looking at a time period that is not as well researched, which is the transition age. So the transition between um, adolescence to young adulthood. So much of that autism research that I've looked at has focused on that transition period. And from that, we've also had the chance to look at um, specific things such as, you know, this focus on STEM. And I think that's where, you know, we've connected because of the interest in looking at whether there is that relationship between autism and STEM. And so that was some of the research that I had done. Right. So I was, I was going to uh, ask you, but I think you answered the question that I had. And that's, so the, the understanding that I have is that you were a teacher, a general education teacher in the classroom, and you were able to see that a lot of kids were different in terms of how they learned, the speed by which they comprehended perhaps, or the kind of interventions that they needed. Uh, but there was not just one condition, there were multiple, right? So you mentioned a few different types of disability. And uh, I suppose you felt that uh, there was not enough support to the Oh, correct me if I'm wrong, there was not enough support for the teacher to understand their different disabilities and how you could um, accommodate them. And that's what led you towards a research path. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as I mentioned, I was teaching in a high school setting. And I think what um, we see, you know, and this is from practical experience, from interacting with teachers, and also what the research shows is that early elementary school teachers and educators tend to have a lot more support and a lot more understanding because of that with regards to um, students with disabilities or diverse learning. When you get to middle school and to secondary school, um, suddenly those that kind of knowledge isn't as uh, readily provided to teachers. And because of that, you're, you're sort of left struggling to kind of find that kind of information on your own. Um, and that was one of the things that I faced. I had a wonderful um, collaborative teaching staff that helped me, especially as a new teacher, to, to sort of navigate um, and try to find appropriate types of resources. But even then, um, it was just really limited. And part of that also was that students, as they got older, some of them were reluctant to divulge the fact that they might have a disability. Um, and that was the case in high school, where I would still be able to find that information. It wasn't as readily available to me as I had hoped it would be, um, at least back then. This was in the 90s. But then, you know, if you get to college, all of a sudden what you see is that many of these students with disabilities who had IEPs and had received a lot of supports throughout, they personally didn't want to identify themselves. And without identifying themselves, you know, they, they're not going to be able to get any supports at all. So there's just a whole 
kind of lifespan type of perspective that I look at when I think about disabilities. You know, many people, many researchers tend to focus on a specific age group. And I have uh, had the opportunity to look at it a lot more um, prospectively across that age range, at least into kind of early adulthood. Um, and so that's been uh, something that's been of real interest to me because as I had experienced from my own um, personal teaching experience, there is just less that we know from an educator's perspective, from an you know, advocate's perspective or a teacher's perspective and parent's perspective uh, in terms of how we can best support students with disabilities like autism. Yeah. Uh, I want to know if you could define uh, this transition age and the particular problems that children with uh, these various uh, disabilities have as they are tra transitioning, and I suppose by that you mean into adulthood, right? Where normally you expect uh, people to be, start becoming more independent and start living their lives. So could you take us through that period in a, a child's sure, life? Sure, sure. So by transition age, we're typically referring to, you know, adolescence, so around 14 to 16 years of age, all the way into adulthood, so the early to mid-20s. And part of the reason that this age is particularly challenging for anybody, but specifically with disabilities, and then if you look at autism, for instance, one of the things that we find is that many of the supports um, that you've received from your school, from your um, you know, medical provider, from your parents, a lot of that suddenly you know, drops off. And it drops off quite unexpectedly, right? You graduate from high school and then suddenly you've entered the real world. And if you pursue college, that may mean that you're going to live in a dorm and the dorm is going to have... Um, people that you have never been around that are going to, you know, be in your personal business. Suddenly you have also this increased academic course load. So there's some added stressors um, that are related to that. And then for autism, one of the things we know is that routine and consistency is extremely important. And yet you have this huge change that's occurring in terms of that routine and you're sort of lost. And in addition to all of that, um, no longer do you really have all the advocacy that you had before. So you are now suddenly expected to advocate for yourself in many ways. Um, and oftentimes we don't provide these students early on with the skills to really be a self-advocate. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I think that this transition period is really tricky. And, and part of the reason why it hasn't really been explored until most recently is because a lot of disabilities um, and especially autism, you know, even if it wasn't a severe um, form of autism, still encountered so many challenges that oftentimes they, you know, to consider having a career, to consider going on to college, it just wasn't even within the realm of possibility, right? So, you know, it was just kind of thought, well, yeah. you know, they're going to stay living with me as the parent or, or something like that. And so there was never really any thought about how we can make an independent adult life truly productive and meaningful. But because of all the early interventions and all the supports and all the research that has gone into early childhood, you know, we've been able to really provide fantastic supports for many of these kids with autism and other disabilities early on that has now led them to a point where we can consider really meaningful, productive adult lives. And yet that's where it sort of stops short. And that's where we need to be able to fill in some of the gaps. 
Oftentimes, amongst parents and uh, advocates of autism, you hear about this tsunami of young adults with autism that are coming in. And it's because there's been this I don't know, preconceived notion or a misconception that for some reason, like if you can do everything you can early on there, you know, you've cured the autism or, you know, they're going to be fine. But that's, you know, you know, this is a part of who they are, right? This is their personality. And just as we, you know, neurotypical folks, everybody needs to be able to adapt and, and grow and be flexible um, and deal with stressful situations. So, too, do those with disabilities and, you know, those with autism. And yet they may need additional supports in order to get them there. And we aren't providing enough of that. How do you envisage the support should be provided? I can imagine there being a problem with... Uh delivery in that it needs to be handed off between, I guess, high school and college, or maybe it needs to be outside of the education system if you know, students aren't even going to college. Yeah, you, I mean, you you said, you know, the perfect word right there, that handoff. And I think that's where, you know, that's where people and, and things sort of just fall off the cliff, so to speak. One of the things that we found, for instance, is that being able in your IEP, so an IEP is an individualized education plan that all students um, with disabilities are supposed to have that is provided by the schools and, and really is supposed to be a fully inclusive environment that also includes the student as well as the parent. Um, one of the things that we've found is that oftentimes these IEPs, which involve these regular meetings and checks, really don't have much voice of the student. It's sort of everyone sort of talking to them. And so they don't really get a chance to really talk uh, for themselves or speak for themselves. And and when I say talk, I don't mean just verbally, because I can hear, I can imagine some people saying, well, I have a nonverbal child with autism. They're not going to be able to speak at all. But, you know, there are other ways for them to be able to express themselves. And so if you are given this opportunity to really express yourself and advocate for yourself throughout this IEP process, what we find is that they then have the ability to go on to college, that they seem they're more likely to enroll in college, that they, you know, and that kind of support sort of in, continues on after high school. And a lot of that, I think, is because when we think about that handoff, the person who's really at the driver's seat really should be the person who's going to be there throughout that whole transition period. And that is that individual with autism, that person with a disability. And as much as you can provide that person with some of those skills to be a self-advocate early on, um, I think that's one of the key things that can help to make that transition go a little bit more smoothly. Now, that said, this is not, you know, saying that everything should be on that, you know, young adult with autism or with a disability. That's not the case at all. I mean, we need to be able to provide the infrastructure and the supports between high school, between colleges, between, you know, vocational um, workforce centers or vocational rehabilitation centers to be able to help make that transition as smooth as possible. And I think there's a recognition of that now, but, you know, these are big system-wide changes and it takes a lot of time and effort and resources. So that's, you know, what we're hoping to do with the kind of research we work on to be able to provide um, the kind of data that people may need in order to be able to voice the importance of having these kinds of supports during this transition age. Hmm. Very interesting. Suppose the end goal, since, uh, as I've mentioned in the past, I have two uh, kids in the autism spectrum and 
our end goal is, if I can use that word, is, is really to give them as much assistance as possible so that they can go on to live as much as possible independent and creative lives and happy lives, of course. But I suppose if we work back from that end goal, it brings us to the present time. And in our case, we homeschool, but there's a lot of other parents who send the kids to mainstream schools, private schools and whatnot. How do you see that progression from the uh, elementary school where um, a variety of people are part of the child's life? It could be parents, of course, friends, teachers, as then they progress to middle school and high school and perhaps into college. There's a lot of people involved during those 10, 15, sometimes 20 years how do you integrate them all into becoming part of that plan to achieve that end goal? Is that something that the family itself must coordinate so they must do some kind of project management in association with professionals like psychologists, um, with the education system and so on? How do we integrate all that into a plan? That's a, that's a great question. And I think, and I'm sure you are aware of this, and if you talk to many parents of um, a child with autism, they will say that oftentimes they are that coordinator, right? Um, and it is a, it's a huge undertaking. Um, and it sh- they shouldn't be alone in this, but oftentimes they are in many ways because um, there isn't really a system that's set up yet where there is a good flow of information and communication between, you know, the, the child's um, medical practitioners and their, you know, ed- the education team. And even within education, those who are in special education and those who are the psychologists or the therapists, as well as the general ed teacher. Like, there's just that kind of lack of communication. So right now, I would say that the family is the core, and the family is the one that is going to coordinate. Whatever we can do uh, to try and make that a little easier um, for the families, I think is, you know, something we all want to work on and want to help. And and I know, you know, there are folks who are, um, you know, software developers who are thinking maybe there's a software approach to this, an app that can be used to help coordinate. And then there are those who are more kind of at the systems level and trying to think of coordination of care. Um, so there are there is that movement to try and provide those supports. But right now, it really is the family, the family unit and the parents as the primary advocates. But, you know, given that um, there are these myriad, you know, resources and supports that exist early on, I think, you know, there's also the advantage that with more people included, there are more opportunities to educate them and educate them to, you know, autism in general or disabilities in general, but then also of, you know, your particular child and their, their you know, specific needs and interests. What will make learning really engaging and effective for them? You know, what is going to be some of, you know, something that's a trigger that's going to cause them to, you know, get really anxious. Like, so there are these opportunities to educate along the way and and I'm a, I'm a big proponent of education and being able to kind of open minds and open up awareness. Um, so I do see that as an advantage. But yeah, it is on, it is on the parents for the most part, I, I would say. I mean, is that how you have seen it as well in your life? Yeah, uh, absolutely. I think that uh, the parents, of course, uh, need to be at the core of this team. 
And the parents, uh, I find ourselves uh, working as coaches and then we need assistant coaches and the uh, the psychologists and the OTs and the various teachers that come into play. But again, it's uh, the coaches or our responsibility to find the best people for the needs that we have identified our children to have. And not always looking at the end goal, always starting with what are we trying to achieve here. So... um, I can't see actually any other way of going about this. I can't see uh, an external organization being in charge of children in the autism spectrum in particular over the next 20 years. Just um, uh, as parents as well, we wouldn't like the situation. And I'd also agree that education is a number one priority in reaching that end goal. If we can get our kids to be able to read, write comfortably, to love reading and to be very keen in achieving a skill set that allow them to work and thrive comfortably. I think we have achieved a goal, but I find that that is a challenge on its own. Like, you know, autism and um, um, both of my kids also have autism and that is a big deterrent in reading books, for example, because reading is so hard for them. So I was looking at your work and uh, in particular, you've worked on something called the UDL Science Notebook um, and you've done a, a student efficacy trial that looks also very, very interesting and promising. Would something like that be a tool that... Oh, could you please tell us more about well, this? Well, I was going to ask about that. <laughs> um, of course, tell us what it is. <laughs> but also I was thinking, is a technology and approach like the UDL Science Notebook something that can help children with autism, with dyslexia and other learning disabilities to to actually love learning because I understand uh, right how uh, the notebook works. Uh, It's all about removing or at least reducing all the nuisances that as myself as a student over the past 30 years had to endure like a lot of things that happened in school don't really contribute to learning and I suppose if I could remove all those learning would become a lot more interesting so to stop my monologue here <laughs> could you tell us a bit more about uh, the ideal science notebook and how does that fit in you know, education in our children with learning difficulties um, so the that science notebook that you're talking about so within the name we've we've now called it snoodle which is stands for the science notebook in a universally designed learning environment um, it includes that term udl universal design for learning in there um, and that's sort of at the core i think of a lot of the kinds of work that we try to do when we think about creating the optimal learning environment for for any kind of learner because all learners are diverse in their learning, um, but especially those who would be the outliers, so those with disabilities, um, with autism or learning disability. So UDL is, uh, is basically an educational framework that says that there are basically three main principles to consider that you should think about um, incorporating within any kind of curriculum or any kind of educational program, multiple means of representation, multiple means of expression, and multiple means of engagement. 
And all that really means is that you need to think about kind of a flexible type of learning environment in order to be able to personalize learning a little better, to adapt a little better, um, so that you can, as you had said, you know, take out the white noise, take out the things that may be too distracting on one end, but on the other end, also provide um, different kinds of learning scaffolds. So being able to, um, you know, provide, for instance, uh, sentence starters or prompts to really help um, get certain, you know, people thinking, especially for new ideas and concepts. And that's where technology is really great because technology affords us an environment where we can be able to provide that kind of flexibility much more easily than if we were working in a paper and pencil kind of world. Um, and so that's what Snoodle does. It takes um, what is considered, you know, the traditional science notebook. So, you know, when think about your elementary science class, you're doing an experiment, and then the teacher will give you the little notebook with lined paper, and it's essentially blank, and you are to fill it out with, you know, your hypothesis, your observations, any data you collect, um, and then, you know, kind of summarize your results. So it takes that and puts it into a digital environment using, you know, either a tablet such as an iPad. It can also be a laptop. It could be an iPhone. It could be, you know, your smartphone or whatever uh, electronic device and really kind of creates this environment that has much more structure to it so that, um, you know, students are able to be able to, um, you know, have the, the kind of learning environment where they can really focus on the questions and the task at hand. At the same time, it provides a lot of sort of adaptations and accessibility features, such as being able to increase or decrease font size and colors, um, being able to um, use text-to-speech or speech-to-text. And so um, being able to provide that kind of optimal learning environment, um, the hope is that that, that that would then help them engage with the learning at hand. So that's one of the things that we're doing with Snoodle right now. This was a digital program that was developed by CAST, um, which is a firm based in Massachusetts. Um, SRI is uh, leading the evaluation of it. And so we're going into um, schools in Houston, Texas, um, where we're looking specifically at fourth grade classrooms and using Snoodle in a randomized controlled trial. So, you know, there's a randomly controlled group of students who are using Snoodle Snoodle, and then those uh, students who are not, they're just using the traditional paper-based uh, science notebook and really seeing if having a science notebook that incorporates these UDL um, features can really help improve science learning, as well as just motivation and general interest in science. Yeah, I can see here the, uh, the page for this product. Got information about the trials. You've got a couple of thousand students going through the trials. So we're in the midst of the study right now. It's a uh, four-year study. We're finishing up the second year of data collection. And so we don't have any specific um, results to share just yet. But I can say just looking at, you know, the because we had a chance to observe the classrooms and see the interaction. I mean, you know, the kids were very engaged in this. And it wasn't just engagement because, oh, it's a fun technology. Mm -hmm. I get to, you know, play around 
around with things. Like that always happens at the beginning when you, um, you know, introduce any kind of new technology, right? But, but after a while, like kids are savvy. They're tech savvy. They'll get bored. They'll want to move on to the next thing unless it's really something that's going to help them and really seems to be useful. And we do see, see that to be the case. They seem especially appreciative of the fact that um, they actually have, you know, what I had referred to in UDL as those multiple means of um, expression, meaning that, you know, typically we would tell them, okay, just write down your answers in traditional, like, long-form sentences or whatever. In this case, you know, they can draw, they can use clip art, they could make a video, um, and that's been a very engaging for them. That sounds like we are now recognizing the fact that everybody learns differently. So through those different modes uh, supported by this technology, yeah. we are providing the tools yeah, yeah, exactly. for people to learn differently. And um, also in Snoodle, one of the, the nice features about it is that we also provide similar um, types of supports on the teacher's end as well. So teachers oftentimes may not know the appropriate way to provide feedback, may not um, you know, really be able to uh, check in regularly with the students. And so those kinds of features are also built in um, to be able to provide teachers with an opportunity to um, really engage with the students in a meaningful way. Um, because obviously the teacher element is always critical, no matter what kind of technology you bring into a classroom. If it's meant to be um, some technology that's in a classroom environment, the teacher has to, be, uh, has to play a key role in that. Yeah. Could you give us an example of how the app might uh, help a teacher provide the feedback? Oh, yeah. I mean, just the very fact that, you know, once a student um, finishes up one specific, you know, component of it. So, um, for instance, if they were to, you know, fill out the data table or something, then there's alerts that lets the teachers know throughout the process that, you know, they've completed this. The teacher at any time can check. They can check an individual's work. It can summarize up to the whole classroom. So you can see pretty quickly, you know, where students are in their progress. And then there's encouragement, sort of uh, reminders to provide that feedback. Because oftentimes, especially, you know, if things are kind of busy and students are moving along, it's hard for teachers to know when to, to jump in and provide feedback. So there's those kind of reminders and prompts for the teacher. And then similarly, just as I mentioned, things like sentence starters or prompts to help um, teacher, uh, help students uh, know how to, you know, respond to a specific type of question, for instance. One of the things we're finding is that teachers also sometimes um, appreciate these kinds of prompts as well. Like sometimes they don't really know the right things to say. And so we'll have some sentence starters to help them think of ways to provide feedback in a productive way. So those kinds of features um, from the feedback we've gotten from the teachers has actually been really helpful. Great. Is this going to be a product that will be publicly available? Um, so can I take <laughs> I, that's what everybody asks when I talk about it. Uh, it's still in the middle of the research you know, study right now. The way that it's been developed also at this point in time for our study has been very specific to the curriculum that's being used for these particular schools. Um, so it may, it's probably not useful to many others, but there is also work that's being done to make it more flexible so that it can be adapted by the teacher so that it meets their particular needs and the curriculum that they're um, teaching. 
So I hope it's something that can be made available um, at some point, you know, after the study is completed. Like I said, we have about two more years to go with that. But yeah, but that's but that would be great. We would love yeah. to be able to make this kind of an open resource for everyone to, to access and use eventually. That sounds great. I'll, I'll keep an eye on this. Uh, I, I wanted to switch to a different topic now. A lot of these difficulties, learning difficulties, are misunderstood uh, in the community um, and teachers being part of the community. I've seen a lot of uh, misunderstanding in the teaching community as well. Could you take a few minutes to tell us about the biggest misconceptions that you have noticed in your work with teachers uh, in relation to learning disabilities and perhaps uh, tell us why those misconceptions are out there and what can we do to improve understanding Mm -hmm. in the teaching community? I think that, um, I don't know if this is a misconception, but I, I think that oftentimes most people, when they think about learning and learning outcomes, they are really thinking about the academics of it. So, you know, the reading, the writing, the math. Um, so, you know, how can we improve that? What is a new curriculum we can use? How, what is the best teaching approach um, to teach something? And all of that is incredibly important and it is obviously a very key part of um, improving any kind of learning outcome. But what I feel is equally important is, you know, what is sometimes referred to as the non-cognitive factors. And that's more sort of the behavioral and the social-emotional communication types of factors, executive functioning. Those are all, I think, equally important. And so if you look at something like autism, those are um, the ones that can be particularly challenging. Oftentimes, you know, a student with autism has, you know, they're extremely bright. Um, If they don't have any other kind of coexisting disability that affects, you know, like an intellectual disability, they're they're very bright. The fact that, you know, they may perseverate over something and and really are just laser focused and can't get off of that can actually be a huge uh, benefit. Yep. Right. In some in some ways, I mean, if you can find that topic that is of real interest to them, you know that they will go all in and will, you know, just focus in and, and just try to absorb as much as they can. So in that regard, if we can, you know, the academics aren't what's really the problem for some of these uh, students with autism. It's really the fact that there are also these non-cognitive factors that really contribute to the overall academic and learning experience where they're really challenged. So, you know, increasingly we try to do project-based learning or we try to do things that, you know, where we partner, where we work in groups. We have to be able to communicate with the teacher. Like all these little things, they build up. And if it's, and if it's a really difficult thing for a child with autism to process, then that's going to interfere with their ability to focus on the academics and focus on the learning, right? So, for example, for non-cognitive issues, uh, the ability to understand a facial expression, right, or to operate in a noisy environment, these are examples of non-cognitive issues that affect Right. The ability of a child to learn in a classroom, for example. Right, exactly. So we know, you know, sensory processing is a big component mm-hmm. of autism. And so if you have this environment that is just, you know, 
a lot of teachers, especially in early grades, love to have huge, colorful posters everywhere. They like to have bright lights. And, and it's great for, you know, lots of kids to help stimulate them. But oh my gosh, for some, you know, for a child with autism, that is just sensory overload. And so obviously there's the end where we have to educate the teacher and educate, you know, the people who are, you know, going to be part of this child's life uh, to make sure they're aware of what is sort of the optimal types of environments. So there's that end of things. And then there's also on the child's end, we have to teach them to self-regulate, to recognize, you know, when something is going to be an overload and find strategies and techniques for them to be able to, you know, get past that in some way. So I believe that, you know, that aspect is really important and is oftentimes overlooked, especially as we, as the child gets older. So again, early intervention oftentimes includes socialization, social skills, includes communication, all those things, you know, really thinks about sensory processing, you start moving on to middle school and high school and that, you know, those kinds of supports are not readily available unless the parents see that as being a key need and continue to advocate for it and provide the right types of therapies and uh, interventions. So that's one of the things that I I see as, um, you know, just a lack of understanding or awareness of uh, the importance of those types of social, emotional, non-cognitive types of factors, um, I think is a really key piece. And then another misconception, and I already touched on that, is, is the fact that, you know, it's, let's not all, let's not put everything on the student. Let's recognize that, you know, if we had a more flexible type of learning environment, if we really consider these UDL type principles and recognize that everyone has sort of diverse um, learning needs, then then let's meet them halfway, right? So to be able to um, recognize that and, you know, be proactive as opposed to being reactive um, as an educator, uh, I think is, is a really important piece, but oftentimes is not something that many teachers may be able to consider because they're thinking, oh, that student with the IP, the one in special ed, that's sort of the other in my group that I have to think about. But really what we're saying is that just really thinking of it as more of having a flexible kind of environment for many diverse learners is a is a really key way of um, and the key kind of mindset to have to be able to address a lot of the the challenges that a student or child with autism may have because you know as I mentioned earlier if you know, for those, if you can find that that thing that they're really passionate about, more often than not, I mean, they will focus in. They will they will be productive. Um, so that's not going to be an issue. It's just getting to that point and providing that kind of opportunity and environment. Yeah, I would definitely like to drill into those areas where, uh, in particular, autistic kids seem to find their home where they're really, really comfortable. So you get back to that in a minute. But just to finish up with this topic on misconceptions, do you think that, at least in my uh, in my observations, the there's about 25, maybe 30 percent of children in a class, in a typical class, say here in Australia, that have some kind of learning uh, difficulty. 
So is there a sizable proportion of each class? Do you think that as part of a teacher's professional development, they should also seek training in dealing with such children? I definitely do. I, I absolutely do. And when we have, um, you know, I've, I've talked with uh, various um, special education professors, so at different um, universities that provide in-service in training to, um, you know, to teachers. And when I ask them, you know, how much um, training or education do you give general education teachers around disabilities? Very few, you know, get much training at all. They may have one course that they took that was maybe, you know, a couple months long, and then that's about it. And so there's definitely needs to be, I think, better training, and especially for some of the upper grades. As I said, you know, elementary school teachers tend to have a little bit more understanding. Um, those in middle and high school, uh, less so. And then when you get to college, I mean, they really don't have, you know, much, the professors there don't have much training at all yep. in, in any of that. But then also, you know, the ability to recognize the kinds of resources that you may have just within your school as well. So not having, not being siloed as I'm in general education and they're in special education and then there's the psychologist and the speech therapist, but really being able to um, work together collaboratively um, and knowing where, where to go for help, I think is a really important um, skill to have and something that's, um, that should be encouraged uh, by schools to be able to break down those walls and have more effective communication amongst staff. Yeah. Very interesting. We, uh, yeah, in our experience, we had trouble getting uh, our kids' teachers actually speaking to the psychologists, you know, to develop uh, strategies to deal with the problems we're having in class. So uh, I think that the teachers were caring, but they didn't have the background education yeah. to yeah. help them understand what they need to do in this particular. And oftentimes, you know, one of the things that may be in an IEP will be that um, a student uh, with autism or some kind of disability may have an aide who comes in um, and, you know, will support them. And I think, you know, obviously that can be hugely effective. But one of the things that often happens is that the general ed teacher is like, oh, thank goodness, you know, that student has somebody who's going to take care of them. So I don't have to worry yep. as much. And so and that. It's not the point, right? The point is that you should be able to, you have this additional support. Um, the student has this additional support, but they are still part of the classroom. That is the whole point of having an inclusive classroom environment. And so that's something that we see as well, that paraprofessional, the person, that aide that's in that room, how can we be able to have a teacher engage effectively with them? So even within like the same classroom setting, there are ways that we can help to train and educate these teachers to be able to be more effective communicators with one another so that they can better support the, their students. Yeah, yeah. I'd like to, to ask you now about the areas in which children with autism in particular enjoy being in. And I have heard of stories that you know, Silicon Valley has got a disproportionate ratio of uh, children with autism than other parts of the world. And that may have to do with you know, parents being engineers and programmers and uh, so on, and STEM related. Is this true? Children in autism, especially gifted, and that I'm using the word gifted in double quotes, 
in STEM subjects? Well, one of, that was one of the um, questions that we had um, in some of our research studies. Uh, we want to know, like, like I said, I live in Silicon Valley, so I am very much exposed to, you know, this world of engineers and, and techies. And uh, it almost seems uh, a given that, you know, someone on the spectrum is like on some, you know, engineer software developers team. And in some ways, it's almost considered um, like a compliment, like, oh my gosh, they must be on the spectrum because they are like an amazing program or something. So that was one of the questions that I had. You know, we have, you know, all these different stereotypes, but is there any empirical evidence to support that? And what we found was that there wasn't really any much empirical evidence. And so we wanted to see if we could um, do some more research on that. One of the things that we were able to do is uh, in the U.S., we have access to this uh, data set called the National Longitudinal Transition Study 2, or NLTS 2. And it happens to be the largest nationally represented representative data set of students with disabilities in the United States. And it was collected, the data were collected over 10 years from about 2000 to around 2009. Um, So SRI worked on actually, um, you know, implementing and collecting that data for NLTS2. And so now we have this rich data set that has over 11,000 students in it. Is there anything from there that we could really pull out and see if we can address this question about STEM and autism? And uh, what we found, and again, this data set, I should say, looks specifically at that transition period, so high school onto young adulthood. And so one of the things that we looked at was enrollment in um, college. Uh, and first of all, you know, how many enrolled in college and then what kind of majors did they have and what kind of careers did they try want to pursue? And uh, what we found was that um, 34% of students identified with autism uh, went on uh, to be STEM Uh, majors in college for those who attended college. Um, And that was a significantly higher um, proportion of college students compared to um, the general population. So we do see that, and and this is supported by some other studies, some smaller studies that exist um, out there, such as the work by Simon Baird-Cohen in Cambridge in the UK, um, that have also shown this, you know, what we call a proclivity towards STEM. Um, And so in terms of thinking about why this may be the case, uh, Simon Baird-Cohen's group, they theorize that it may be this... um, you know, this this proclivity and this ability to systemize is what they call it. Um, and so that is to, you know, this desire to really produce um, these kind of systems that are grounded in rules and, you know, and constructs. And so structure. if you think, in, yeah, exactly, to be able to provide some structure to all the chaos that's going on in their world. And so all of that leads to like real sense of, sense of desire to follow rules, to be able to really focus in on things, the ability also to focus in on details, you know, that that perseverating over things, all of those attributes, which some may consider to be a deficit or a symptom of autism in a negative sense, are actually also considered to be really positive things in certain careers, such as in many STEM careers, um, like programming. And so that's where we see that connection. This is not necessarily not necessarily to say that, you know, all students with autism should go on to STEM careers. Like, that's not the case at all. But definitely, you know, there's just attributes that they have that would just naturally make them inclined to STEM because it's something that they already do to help them sort of process the world around them. 
Cool. Yeah. You just answered my question. Uh, <laughs> read the mind. <laughs> so, in other words, there is a statistical evidence that there is a correlation between children with autism going on to train in some STEM area that is higher than the background population, right? And would you find the inverse in, say, social studies? So how many people that identify themselves with autism would become, I don't know, uh, history graduates or uh, literature graduates? So we did look at that as well. And we found that, you know, there were fewer students with autism who went on to pursue what we call these non-STEM majors. So history, for instance. And so we do see that to be the case. Uh, we haven't delved into that as deeply, so I wouldn't say that you know they are you know opposed to any of that. Um, and that actually makes me think of um, the fact that there are these initiatives out there right now, especially amongst. Um, uh, different types of employers, especially tech employers who have really seen, uh, have really become interested in improving their workforce by including more people who are diverse, um, including those with autism. And so I don't know if you're familiar with some of those programs. Um, I know in Australia, DXC Technology has a dandelion program, which is specifically about uh, increasing the uh, their workforce uh, by having you know more people with autism involved in it. Yeah. SAP was one of the first uh, companies that really um, started this whole autism at work initiative. And one of the things that they had found over time is, you know, initially they thought, well, everyone we're going to bring in, they're eventually going to have the tech jobs. Like that's why we're doing this. But what they found as, you know, they brought these, uh, these individuals in and got them to, you know, interact with different parts of the organization is that actually there was a lot of diversity in terms of what was a good fit for them. It may be HR, it may be marketing, it may be something that you would not consider, you know, as being, you know, their primary focus. And so that just goes to show, you know, you really can't tell um, what would be the good fit. It's just about making sure you give them the opportunities and the skills to be able to um, enter into that kind of workforce and that environment um, so that they can try these things out and learn for themselves. Would you say that the lack of diversity in STEM, I guess, fields is due to like the gender imbalance in terms of how, I guess, autism is more common in boys than girls? That could be a contributing factor. I mean, we do know, you know, there is definitely a lack of uh, females in STEM fields compared to males. Um, and we do know that there are a lot of males uh, who have autism compared to females. Um, so there's a correlation there. Um, I don't know if that correlation necessarily shows us causation, but um, I think that that could, you know, there is something to, to speak of um, in that space. But I think also it's really about both in the case of the gender difference in STEM, as well as, you know, just kind of difficulties in, in general in terms of getting, um, getting more uh, diversity within STEM fields. I think a lot of it has to do with um, sort of the instruction that has traditionally been used in STEM, where I think it may not have been as um, motivating for certain, you know, populations to be able to really become engaged with the material the way that it's been taught. So, you know, it's very, like, you know, maybe very theoretical or something, and you may be a much more concrete learner. Uh, so I, I do feel this 
goes back to the whole universal design for learning and that framework and being able to, you know, provide this learning material in different ways that can really capture the interest and engage and motivate students to want to learn and continue to pursue that topic. Hmm. Well, on that, what would you advise parents and teachers who have autistic children and at the same time are having trouble you know, helping the children learn because the enjoyment is not there. For example, you can't, uh, a child might not be able to focus for more than five minutes on a particular topic in order to learn it. So what would you advise them to help the children to enjoy learning? Mm -hmm. And obviously after that, to do more of it. I think um, a lot of it comes down to getting to know your students, to really understand them. You know, there, there's a saying within the autism community, if you've met one person with autism, then you have met one person with autism. And that is essentially saying that autism is so diverse um, that you can't really make too many generalizations because of the diversity in terms of the needs and the challenges and the and the strengths of that particular um, individual. And I could say that of, but I could say that of you know many kinds of learners. There's so much diversity in any given classroom, and so being able to um, identify you know specific interests and strengths of a child. So for instance, if you know this child with autism loves trains and you know and there are many uh, who, who seem to really enjoy trains are there ways that you can incorporate something that they're truly passionate about and be able to um, engage them in in the classroom um, using a topic and being able to you know pro provide lessons around that so I think that's one way to to help um, a teacher be able to better support a child with autism. So build, build on their desires yeah. and things that they are naturally interested in learning and to amplify that. Right, right, exactly. And the other thing is um, just... You know, it's it's not just about focusing on that, you know, student with autism, that student with disability. It's also about educating that whole classroom and really having the classroom of students recognize and appreciate diversity and, you know, diverse thinking and diverse learning. And so, you know, one of the things that we find over and over again um, in the research is that peer, what we call peer-mediated instruction. So that essentially means like classmates helping each other out. That's actually one of the most effective forms of instruction for all, lots of students with disabilities and for the student without the disability. Um, so there is something about that. If it is a type of peer interaction that ha is, is positive, so there has to be some teaching ahead of time, I think, on the teacher's part. Like Teachers can't just say, okay, all of you do group work together, go, and just expect them to all work beautifully together. There has to be some instruction, again, on that non-cognitive factor on being able to know how to effectively communicate, work collaboratively, and then bringing them together that would make for a really positive learning experience for all the students in that classroom. Um, so, so having, you know, being able to provide that kind of opportunity, I think, would be um, really helpful for everyone. Yeah, that's really interesting. So uh, students don't learn in isolation. It's not like transmission from the teacher to the students, but Students help each other learn. Right, right. Yeah, I wish there was a case in my days. 
Yeah, but, you know, back then, like 20, 30 years ago, or even today in a large extent, uh, it's a transmission of knowledge from the teacher, the expert, and uh, students uh, just absorb, theoretically absorb the knowledge, uh, but there's no uh, interaction between the students uh, during the process. Right, right. So I think that's important, yeah. Um, I suggest we move into a few quick questions now. And we call those rapid fire questions. Okay. <laughs> Marvin, do you want to go for the first one? Uh, you're from Silicon Valley. What app can you not live without? Oh my gosh, <laughs> seriously? <laughs> Where do I start? Um, let's see. Well, I will say I use my phone as a flashlight all the time. So I don't know that it's not necessarily an app, <laughs> but that's a feature I could not live without. Um, and <laughs> And then I would say also, um, you know, my Kindle app, because I just love to read on the go. And it's just been really helpful for me to just, you know, pull out my smartphone at any time and and take a look at a book um, when I have some free time. Do you listen to books? Audiobooks? I do. I do listen to books as well. But I've noticed that I am less of an auditory processor. I actually am more of a visual learner. Mm. And so um, when I listen to books like my mind sort of wanders and I realize like, you know, 15 seconds in that I completely miss what they were saying. So then I have to go back. It actually takes me longer to get through an audiobook because of that. Oh, well, my kids uh, love audiobooks. Actually, that's the only kind of book that they ah, read. Uh-huh. <laughs> but it's, it's quite opposite. I'm, I'm like you. Uh, if I listen to a book, I might get some of it, but I will have to listen to it again because mind wanders off if my eyes are not focusing mm-hmm. on the text. Uh, but my kids can listen to the same book about 20 ah, times. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, my kids do that too. They have some some um, books, that audio books that they go to time and time again. And that's what we listen to in the car yeah. during long drives. There you go. Yeah, exactly. There you go. There's another tip how to enjoy learning. So you remove that difficulty of reading, especially if you're dyslexic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's awesome. Um, let's say that a teacher that has just graduated from teacher school, <laughs> just college, college. <laughs> college. <laughs> asks you for advice. What should I be careful about when I go into a class and I know from statistics that 20 or 30% of the kids in my class will have some kind of learning difficulty or learning difference? What is the one or two things that you can advise me to be careful about, to be aware of, to be better? to be a better teacher for those students? Well, I think, you know, like I had said earlier, just really get to know the student, get to know the the family. Look at that IEP, like be, you know, and talk mm-hmm. to, you know, the, the therapists and the special ed teachers to really get a handle on what's going on in the classroom um, and how um, you can really be able to provide a classroom that's going to be a great learning environment for that student. Um, so don't be afraid. I think there's some fear that's associated when they, when they realize that, oh my gosh, you know, I have these students with disabilities. I just, I don't know how to... Yeah, yeah. Like, how do I deal with this? Um, But there shouldn't be any fear. I think, I think, you know, parents would so appreciate having, you know, a conversation with the teacher and having the teacher go to them and not, you know, the parent having to go to the teacher for a change, right? Like, just, just recognizing that they, you know, the teacher wants to learn more about your student and wants to learn more about how they can meet their needs. I think that that would be huge. 
What about that naughty child in the back of the class? For that naughty child, I would say, you know, there's always a reason for any kind of naughtiness. There's always a reason. Mm. Um, and you can you can say, well, like, I have no idea why they went off. Like, everything was perfectly fine. And the kid just went off. Well, it could be that things happened even before the child went into the classroom. Maybe things happened to them, you know, that morning um, while they were getting ready for, for school. Maybe it happened on the bus ride over. And so just this awareness of, you know, what's going on. And in terms of behavioral type of research and behavioral interventionists, they would call this a functional behavioral type of assessment that you would do an FBA, where you look at sort of the antecedents. So what came before that, you know, contributed to the behavior that experiencing now? And because if you can, re if you um, can identify that and be able to address that, then chances are you can reduce those behaviors. Sort of like a scientist that tried to uh, analyze the situation and find the root cause of right. the behavior, which might involve actually particular tests uh, that you can conduct or you can ask a psychologist perhaps in the school or the parents to do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Do you have any suggestions on how to do that? Well, just, you know, recognizing patterns is the key thing there. Um, and so if you're finding that, you know, the child always acts up during math, um, you know, it could be that they're very frustrated with math. It could be that um, maybe, you know, math comes just before lunch. And so they're really hungry by that point of time. So, but you don't know that until you've collected data and you can see some of those patterns. So teachers, you know, if you take the time to do some, you know, quick sort of checks of behavioral, you know, patterns, I think, you know, that could be effective. Bringing in um, somebody to do an observation um, so that it becomes much more kind of formalized FBA, I think that would be hugely, um, uh, hugely helpful as well. So not being afraid to ask for help is another key thing. Mm. Great. Uh, in my case, uh, for my younger child, it was a flickering light. Oh, <laughs> yeah, see, there you go. There you go. <laughs> it would drive him crazy. Oh, awesome. Thank you for that. Um, do you do any data analysis in your line of work? So I can imagine you collect a lot of data. How do you analyze the data? So we analyze the da data by um, using statistical software packages like SAS um, or Stata or SPSS. Those are the ones that are oftentimes used, especially in education and so social science research. Um, and so, you know, that helps us to analyze the data from, you know, basic kind of frequencies all the way to more sophisticated types of regression analyses um, so that we can really think about, you know, what is what is truly at the root cause of, you know, certain things or whether an intervention truly is effective and mm -hmm. it's not some other kind of confounding effect that's contributing to the, you know, the impacts that we see. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I do a lot of analyses yeah. and uh, definitely love data, love numbers and just, yeah, and love to tell stories with them. So you're, one of your core skills is in statistical analysis. Yes. Mm -hmm. Would that be correct? Yes. Yeah, great numbers. I used to teach uh, a bit of statistical analysis, but in the business context, but <laughs> I actually enjoyed it. I thought it was the, the ability of numbers to reveal truths in large populations and actually to understand what they mean and draw conclusions. I thought it was uh, a very good skill to have. So I recommend it to everybody. Get a, a statistical analysis book. <laughs> um, let's see. Books, of course. We can't forget books. Uh, would you recommend, say, a couple of books that you think will help teachers and parents understand their special learning needs, uh, student or children? Um, I 
think that, you know, there are a lot of different types of books that have looked at autism from a more personal perspective. Um, so sort of narrative types mm -hmm. of books or, you know, autobiographies. So Temple Grandin has done one. I think that being able to read that and get a, a better sense of the person behind the, um, the disability would be really helpful for anybody um, who, you know, has a student with autism um, or just, you know, wants to learn more about it. Specifically with regards to questions like STEM and autism or just really trying to understand the history behind autism. I actually uh, really enjoy Neurotribes, um, which was a book by um, Stephen Silverman that came out a few years ago. So that, yeah, Great so book. I would recommend that one as well. So those are the kinds of books that I tend to find more informative in some ways than some of the more instructional ones, um, because I think first it's important to really understand what autism is, um, understand what's going on before you can start to think about, okay, now what can I do to, to like help them or to, to solve the problem? How it feels like, I think that's what the autobiography book would be good at explaining mm -hmm. what it feels like to be yeah. an autistic person, right? So which one was the book that you mentioned, the autobiographic one? So John Elder Robeson, he wrote a book um, called Look Me in the Eye uh, about Asperger's that uh, yes. I think it's, a, it's again, it's a memoir um, and just really enlightening just to see kind of the different perspectives So I would recommend, you know, those kinds of books. There was that book, um, oh gosh, it was The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime, I think is what it was called, that I also thought was a really interesting mm -hmm. perspective about um, autism. And, and it was also sort of, you know, this uh, fictional detective type story as well. So really, so it isn't specifically about autism, but, right. you know, also shows um, everything from the perspective of a child with autism. Um, so that was a really interesting book. Yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I've got a few other books now in my mm -hmm. to-read list. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so the uh, Look Me in the Eye by John Elder Robinson, My Life with Asperger's, uh, which Asperger's these days is really classified as being part of the, uh, within the autism spectrum, right? Just a different manifestation of uh, autism behavior, autistic behavior. Right, right. So with the um, latest version of the DSM-5, uh, so the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual that came out mm -hmm. from the um, American Psychiatric Association, they've uh, taken out Asperger's as a, its own separate diagnosis and increased uh, sort of the symptoms that are found under autism so that it's truly now considered a spectrum and that you can look at it as such. Mm -hmm. Yep, yep. Great. Okay. Um, any parting thoughts for our listeners? Uh, I know you covered a lot in the previous hour. Any last thoughts you'd like to share? Um, let's see. I think uh, just the fact that they would uh, be listening to this podcast um, and may have this interest in autism, I think is hugely important um, because As I said earlier, just having that kind of awareness of, of the whole general public, I think, is really important. And especially being at an audience that's going to be primarily on those in the education space, just knowing that you really do have this ability to um, dramatically uh, affect 
the lives of these students and really improve the lives of students, not just in your classroom, but whatever happens here really is going to carry on. I mean, that's what we see when we do this kind of lifespan type of research. Um, just, Just recognizing that and just knowing, you know, what a gift it is that you can provide that kind of experience uh, for a student, uh, for all students, but especially those with disabilities, I think is, is just something to always keep in mind. Yeah, just imagine the accumulated benefits exactly. of time. I think that's wonderful mm-hmm. advice. Thank you. Um, can people get in touch with you if they want to ask something um, of you, maybe something that you said? triggered an interest and want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, definitely. I would love to connect with anybody um, who's interested in learning more. And probably the best way would be my email. Uh, So that's jennifer.u at sri.com. Yep, got it. We'll have that in our show notes. Well, thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. Thank time you. And uh, the conversation we had it was very helpful to me as well uh, as having um, a direct interest in all this. Enjoy the rest of your day and uh, we'll be in touch very soon. Yeah, thank you so much for reaching out. This was great. I really enjoyed the conversation. That's all for this episode. The notes for this episode that include links to many of the resources mentioned and information on how to get in touch with Jennifer are available on our website, texplore.com forward slash pay forward slash STEMiverse. Each episode comes with its own page on the Tech Explorations website and a goldmine of information in the notes. This Stemverse podcast episode was produced by Tech Explorations. Do you have any questions or suggestions? Would you like to nominate a friend or colleague to be our guest? Please email us at pa at texplore.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, STEMiverse. That's S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again next time.